Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we look at the opening of the Elizabeth Line in London. Here at Paddington, there is actually a bench set up selling exclusive, it says, Elizabeth Line merchandise. You can get the Elizabeth Line upholstery on a deck chair or a carrier bag uh, or cushions. Uh, they really have thought of everything and I guess in keeping with the true spirit of commuting in London, there's a cue for it. Plus, we speak with the editor-in-chief of Vogue Ukraine. We feature personal stories of the survivors. We give advices how to survive during the war. And we remind our readers of the heroic history and this unique cultural heritage of the country they are now fighting for. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now, while much of the focus on the war in Ukraine has been on the military side and Western efforts to provide weapons to defeat Russia, there's also an economic element. Ukraine, in short, needs money, and a lot of it. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, just outside the bustling Ukraine house, where the country has its base in the city, Monaco's Chris Chermak spoke with Alexander Rodnyansky, economic advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and professor of economics at the University of Cambridge. He began by asking him what his goal and message was during his time in Davos. I'm here as part of our delegation, Ukrainian delegation. We're talking to Western diplomats, Western politicians, media, policymakers, experts, professors, academics, the whole global community in economics and more broadly to garner support for Ukraine, to talk about the most essential. Right now that's sanctions, sanctions on Russia, that means both sectoral sanctions, but also personal sanctions in order for us to target the wealth of Russia's corrupt and criminal elites and make sure we can confiscate it and transfer it eventually to our reconstruction fund. I think that's both just and fair and the right economically thing to do in the long run because we want to create the incentives for Russia to change. So we want to make sure that corruption doesn't pay off for them in the long run. So that's what we're here for. And obviously, we're also thinking about reconstruction, as I just mentioned, more broadly. We want to make sure that our partners, the World Bank, institutions, companies, everyone can chip in and everybody can think about laying the foundations for a future prosperity of Ukraine. And why is it important, would you say, to think about that as well now? You, you focused also, you were just on a panel in the Ukraine House. Why is it important to think both about these short-term issues of sanctions, but also about money now for Ukraine, for the rebuilding process? Well, it's important because we want to make sure that we already address the grave concerns about concerning reconstruction the great concerns of reconstruction in Ukraine, we, would, we don't want to wait for years until the war is fully over. We have to start reconstruction already. We know that Russia went into the northern parts of Ukraine. They occupied for a short time the Kiev region, Chernihiv region, Sumer region. And there is grave devastation in those regions. We are starting reconstruction efforts already. We can't just wait and sit idly until the war is over because life has to resume. So that's why we need funds. We also need funds for our current economic expenditures. That's a little bit separate from reconstruction, but that's also something we discuss. And so that's what it's, why it's important in the short run. And in the long run, it's important because we want to make sure that Europe lives and prospers and that we don't have a poverty trap in which Ukraine is going to find itself in if we don't do this. 
You spoke quite eloquently in there about the challenge of sanctions. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, that it's not really just about sanctions, is it? It's, it's about the fact that as long as we are still, or Europe is still using Russian gas, paying for Russian gas and oil, it doesn't necessarily matter what the financial sanctions are. Absolutely. So what I was saying in there is that there is a close interrelation between all different types of sanctions, sectoral sanctions, but, but even individual sanctions that we consider and implement. So a simple example is that we are asking and hoping that Europe will implement a full oil and gas embargo on Russia eventually. And that means, you know, that Russia is not going to be able to sell its resources to Europe. But then people ask, okay, so that's an energy sectoral sanction that concerns the energy sector. Why not introduce more sanctions in the meantime on Russian financing, on Russia's banks, for example? Well, the answer is simple because you can't ban all Russia's banks from the SWIFT system if it's these particular banks that Russia is using to settle these accounts for European payments, right? To conduct the transactions coming from Europe for the payments of oil and gas. So all these things are intricately linked. That's a very simple example. So until Russia is exporting its resources, the West is not going to sanction these banks. So it's simple as that. And, and therefore, we have to make sure that we address the elephant in the room. And that's primarily, in the case of Russia, the energy exports. And talk a little bit more about the personal sanctions as well. Why are you convinced? Why do you feel that would have such a significant impact? Could it really change the minds of those people in Russia, the business leaders, short term or long term in terms of what they are currently doing? Yeah, sure. So I have a I can spell that out in quite a bit, but let me be, try and be brief. So first of all, this is a key tool that we want to use in the medium run, not just for Ukraine, but to make sure that we secure Europe's prosperity going forward. What do personal sanctions accomplish? Well, first of all, they will accomplish the fact that for ethical and moral reasons, we need to impose them on the corrupt elites that have been around Russia and have been complicit and responsible for the current war efforts that are ongoing on the part of Russia. These are not just businessmen. So this is a big misconception on the part of the West. People tend to think about these oligarchs as some sort of very super rich, high worth, high net worth individuals, just like in the West. And so therefore, you want to you know, potentially make them accountable or hold them accountable, but not really because they're not really part of the state. That's a fallacy. This is how Russian crony capitalism works. And it's time for Europe and for the West to comprehend that. These people are an intricate component of the regime. They have always been. They have always been the holders of Russian wealth. And they have been, not just that, they have been undermining all sorts of remnants of independent institutions in Russia. They have been undermining a judiciary, an independent and functioning judiciary, by bribing courts, by paying bribes to judges, by making sure that foreign competition doesn't enter into Russia, by lobbying against foreign competitors. And therefore, they have laid the foundations and paved the way for this war to happen in the first place. They are co-responsible for what is happening, not just complicit, responsible. And so we need to punish them, of course. And that's reason number one. Reason number two is practical. They have a lot of corrupt wealth. Just in Switzerland, they have about $200 billion sitting on Swiss bank accounts, and that's a lower bound, according to the estimates that some people mention. So we can freeze that. We can transfer that to the reconstruction efforts as part of the compensation, the legitimate compensation that we need. And finally, and this is what some people don't think about a lot, is that the type of sanctions that I mentioned, the personal sanctions, are a very important tool in making sure that we give incentives to the future 
Russian elites and future Russian society to actually build up a new system and lay the foundation for a new type of economy that will put people to the top that aren't corrupt and haven't made it to the top because they are criminal, but because they're actually talented and have ideas and have the skills to implement those ideas as in the West. So you want to make sure that everyone understands unequivocally that corruption does not pay off. It doesn't pay off in the long run. On the contrary, it leads to severe punishment and permanent punishment. You want to send that signal very clearly. And that's why it's important, not just for Ukraine, but also for the future of Russia, because we want to make sure that we create the incentives for a democratic Russia to exist in the future. And just finally, Alexander, to, to put it back on Ukraine, all of this is about how to sort of reduce Russia's economy, essentially, to, to stop them from financing the war effort. How is Ukraine managing to finance its own war effort right now, its own economy? How is it succeeding in keeping things going? Yes, so it's obviously a huge challenge. No secret about that. Our economy is collapsing almost by half. Current estimates have it that our GDP is going to contract by around 45%, according to the World Bank, but others as well. So in fact, I will say this is the area where we need most support from the West. People always think that we somehow need a lot of support for the weapons supplies, and that's true. I don't want to negate that in any way. But in fact, we have a lot of our own weapons. And while the weapons support has been pivotal, it is actually even more important to support us economically such that we can keep our current expenditures going, that we can finance our pensions, that we can finance our social services, and like you say, that we can finance the actual war efforts and pay our soldiers and so on. So that is happening with the help of the West because any country that's facing a collapse of its GDP of that magnitude is going to have trouble, of course. So we're doing that. We're also issuing war bonds and our banks, our local banks are buying these bonds, sovereign bonds that are now issued just for the purposes of war. But it's an ongoing challenge and of course we will need more support going forward. And continuing with our Davos coverage, we hear now from Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council based in Washington, D.C. Here are his thoughts on what made this year different from previous editions of the Forum. I've been here more than 25 years, and there are two things dramatically different about this time. One of them is the weather. I've never been here in May, and I've, I've, I've always fallen down and had to pick myself up from the snow. The second is... Uh, we are at an inflection point in history where we have a combination of economic uncertainty, the markets tanking, the potential of global recession, you know, inflation that we haven't experienced for a long time, plus the war in Ukraine, Putin's war in Ukraine, where we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know whether Putin wins whatever that means, Ukraine wins whatever that means, or whether it could escalate. And you can't rule that out, that there could be war between NATO and Russia when everyone wants to guide against that. So there's, there's, it's anxious. It's an anxious world right now, and you really feel it here, where people, you know, people will still have their parties. That's what you do in Davos. Uh, people, and, but it's not, it's not that mood. There, is, there isn't a, a let go and let's have some fun mood. It's, it's, it's happy to be back together, but can we navigate this period of time and come out Whole. Tell us actually a little about where we are standing as we're talking to you and the relevance of it for you. Well, we're standing in front of Russian Crimes House. Uh, the reason it's meaningful to me, and I was just walking between meetings and I walked in here because it's so compelling, it has been Russia House. So it's been the house that's been pushing forward the propaganda of Putin 
for several years in this house and it's been rented out to be Russia Crimes House and they have the most amazing photographs, the most amazing videos of Russian crimes. Uh, and so, uh, and the Russians, for the first time I think since the World Economic Forum existed, were not invited this year. That's a tough decision for them to make because they want to be inclusive. Uh, but how could you do that this year? You, you just couldn't. And just, is, is there anything that you feel needs to sort of get decided during these next few days? It isn't a decision-making body, but do you hope for some kind of consensus on all those challenges you were talking about to come out of this? The message I'm going to send is this is an inflection point in history as important as the end of World War I, as important as the end of World War II, as important as the end of the Cold War. End of World War I, we got it tragically wrong. League of Nations, Versailles Treaty ended up with millions of dead, the Holocaust, World War II. World War II, we got it more right than wrong. The international liberal order, uh, the United Nations, the Bretton Woods institutions. At the end of the Cold War, we thought everything was coming in our direction. Uh, it was the end of history, and people were just going to embrace liberal, uh, open societies and democracies. Well, now we know that's not the case. So now we have to seize the moment again. And I want people, instead of being dark about the dangers, and the dangers are there, is to seize hope and to build on hope. That's what we've done in the past. That's what we did after World War II. That's what we did after the Cold War. Science is uh, speeding ahead uh, to serve humanity faster than ever before. Technology can be harnessed for good or for bad. We have to see that it's harnessed for good. But this is a hinge moment in history. We're in Davos at a hinge moment in history. And so that's what these people are. They're the leaders of the world. And, and they actually have to navigate this, every one of us, navigate this and the good thing is Ukraine is showing us the way if we want hope it's President Zelensky it's Ukraine they uh, he he and the Ukrainian people reminded us of what we stand for and so I think there is hope in the air but against a backdrop of a lot of danger you are listening to the curator of Monaco 24 with me Fernando Augusto Pacheco and now for something delicious. Here is Felipe Carvalho, the head chef of the Michelin-starred restaurant 50 Seconds in Lisbon. He explains how to prepare his superb lobster with rice. Hello, my name is Felipe Carvalho. I'm the executive chef of 50 Seconds Martin Brazategui, that is the restaurant in Lisbon, in the most talented building in Portugal. We have one-star Michelin, a panoramic view, and uh, we are Mediterranean food with fine dining concept. Today we're going to tell you about the signature dish that we do in the restaurant, that is a rice lobster. The rice lobster is a very traditional plate in Portugal, but in 50 seconds we try to give some twist to give a different plate to the guest. Our idea, and I'm going to explain you how we do this plate. This plate we use the blue lobster. The blue lobster comes from Peniche or from Algarve. And uh, the way that we cook the blue lobster is when the lobster arrives, we took the head and the head we use to do the stock and with the body, we cook the body in the water with salt like with the same quantity of salt that is come from the sea and we cook at 80 degrees until 5 minutes the body if it's a lobster of 500 grams and the tails, we cook uh, 7 minutes if it's one lobster of 500 grams after we clean all the lobster and we have the body we put in the saute with some clarified butter and we cook with only in the light, with the worm then for the rice we do a, a stew, that is a stew that we use garlic, we use onions, everything means, and the tomato. 
without peel, without seeds, only the meat of the tomato. And then we cook this until we do the, some compote. After we do the compote, we have everything, we cook very well the onions. When the onions lose the water, we put the tomato. When the tomato lose the water, we put the stock. And then with that, we reduce the stock. And then we use some tomato frito or fried tomato. That is the one thing that we bring from Spain. This is what we bring from influence from Spain and Martin. And this fried tomato is only tomato and olive oil. But this tomato in the best time of the year. And we have some cans of this to give more flavor to the dish. Then after we have this compote of tomato, we start cook the rice. The rice is a little bit this compote. We put the aquarello. The aquarello is the type of the rice that we use in the restaurant that come from the north of Italy. And we start cook the rice with the stock that we do with the heads of the lobster. If you want to do the stock in your house, you can do the stock go the heads of the lobster with some onions, some uh, French garlic, some tomato, some tomato paste, cognac, a good one. <laughs> We let cook with water and we cook for 40 minutes, no more than this. We blend a little bit only for bring more flavor to the stock and then we pass. After we pass, we use this stock for cook the rice. And we're going to cook the rice step by step until the rice is good. When it's almost done, we took from the heat and we let rest for the rice can absorb more flavor and more stock. And then when is the rice rest five minutes, we go another time to the heat and we put more stock and let finish the cook. When the rice is finished, we put a little bit of butter, a little bit of olive oil and uh, some pepper and some salt. And we finish like, not. I can tell it's a risotto, but we won't do like a, a rice with stock, but not liquid, but with some fatty and some flavor. And then we finish the plate, we do a champagne sauce. This champagne sauce is chicken stock, fish stock and some shallots. And then we put, if you want to in home, you can do one liter of fish stock, one liter of uh, chicken stock and some like 10 shallots. We cook this until reducing the half. After reducing the half, you put a bottle of white wine and you let reduce, a bottle of champagne, you let reduce, and then a bottle of port wine, <laughs> the sweet one, and you let reduce. After we have this reduced, we pass and we finish with some cream and some butter and some fleur de sal. And after we finish this sauce, this sauce, we're gonna finish the plate with some emulsion of champagne and we finish some sauté mushrooms with this champagne sauce reduced to give some acidity and some more flavor. And then we finish with the blue lobster that is pre-cooked and only warmer up in the light. And from the wine pairing, I bring you a Pinot Noir from Casal das Aires. It's very close to Lisbon, it's in Tejo. And is the winemaker is Juan Pinhão. The way for the shoes this wine is uh, Pinot Noir is a very soft red wine that is go very well with shellfish and uh, hope you enjoy when you come taste to the restaurant this dish that we explained you today. And this week everyone here in London was excited with the opening of the Elizabeth Line. Let's hear more from Monaco's Andrew Muller and Sophie Grove. What are their thoughts on the line? <laughs> And this is me walking down the platform at Whitechapel for my first trip on the Elizabeth Line. I will be heading east, not to Bond Street, which would be convenient for Midori House because that station isn't open yet. But my plan is to go to Paddington and then figure out how to make my way back from there. It'll be here shortly. 
The next service to arrive on platform B is your Paddington service, calling Liverpool Street, Farringdon, Topical Road and Paddington. The service will not call upon Street. Please use the full length of the platform, move your way down the whole length of the platform and the carriages will be a bit emptier. The train approaching platform B is the service to Addington, not stopping at Bond Street. Here we go. And this is where I mutter to myself on the tube, which is frankly how I always envisage spending my retirement, but we are where we are. Uh, first impressions, I have to say, are pretty positive. It's very clean, which is to be expected, given that London has only had a morning to mess it up so far. It's very quiet. It's one of those modern trains where there aren't really carriages. It's all one corridor, which is good because it means it's easier to get away from pestilential passengers, but actually bad because then it's harder as well to get away from pestilential passengers. Uh, there's London Underground people walking the train wearing Elizabeth Line branded orange IVs answering questions. Uh, Everybody seems strangely excited about their commute this morning. It's really quite sweet. Liverpool Street. This is the train to I started out really at Mile End this morning and got the district line to Whitechapel before joining the Elizabeth line. That would normally be an absolutely interminable schlep at uh, Mile End to Paddington. That has taken, well, it feels like absolutely no time at all. Um, rather sweetly here in the, it feels grand enough that you can call it an arrivals hall uh, here at Paddington. There is actually a bench set up selling exclusive it says Elizabeth line merchandise you can get the uh, you can get the Elizabeth line upholstery on a deck chair or a carrier bag uh, or cushions uh, they really have thought of everything and I guess in keeping with the true spirit of commuting in London there's a cue for it And I'm joined now by Andrew and also by Sophie Grove, who also made the trip. Andrew, I can't believe you didn't queue up and got me some merch. Uh, yeah, sorry about that, but I, I, I don't know what size sock you take. <laughs> oh, I would take anything for some Elizabeth line <laughs> uh, con uh, content. Uh, Sophie, how was the trip for you? 
I thought it was great. I mean, it's beautiful, sort of vaulted concrete. Even walking through the, the sort of those little kind of tubes that they put you through, getting from one hall to another is quite an interesting experience. It's very smooth, as Andrew said. It's like you, know, you can hear the hum on that lovely audio we just listened to. But it, 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 the motion when you're aboard the train is quite nice. It, the reason why it doesn't feel like such a schlep is because... The train doesn't kind of throw you about like the other ones. It's quite smooth and it's just a very nice moment for London. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm, I mean, if we if we leave aside things like the umpty billion dollar or umpty billion pound cost overrun and the fact that it's taken 100 years longer to build than it should have, I, th- I think it could be genuinely transformative for parts of London uh, and also for some Londoners, particularly people who live in and work in difficult, out of, previously out-of-the-way places, uh, or disabled Londoners, because they've been punctilious about ensuring that everybody uh, can use this line, which isn't the case elsewhere on the underground. Well, you bring me to my next question. Uh, was it worth the wait? Um, we're not even going to talk about the cost, but uh, also there were so, such several delays. Uh, was it worth it? You both seem to be fans. I think it's worth the wait. I mean, firstly, we weren't particularly using the the network in the way that it had, you know, we were waiting from our homes quite a lot of the time in the delays. But I think that it's it's well worth the wait. I mean, it's a big investment for the city, but it really does need it, even with the reduced capacity. Um, as Andrew said, you know, there are so London is such a difficult place to travel, partly because of the sort of old beautiful kind of like historic network. I mean, I usually get off at Baker Street, which is sort of like Sherlock Holmes style panelling, but it creeps along. And this is a modern sort of mega city and we need infrastructure. And I'm completely against the naysayers. Um, And I think it's going to really rebalance the city in the sense that all of these eastern um, suburbs, Essex, but also Reading, people who would be sort of commuting for hours and hours a day for quite considerable sums will now just be able to whiz into London and I think that can only be a good thing. I'd just like to say I do like the way they have handled the presentation of opening day as well, not just the the merchandise stall at Paddington and I assume there's others elsewhere on the network, but even the detail that Slightly annoying though it is, certainly to those of us who work here at Midori House, that Bond Street uh, station is not yet open. When you pass through Bond Street, they've got the familiar London Underground roundels already on the platform, but instead of Bond Street, it just says opening soon. So they've thought of even that. You get to see that as you, as you go past and, and look forward to the day where we can ride the thing right into work. It has a really wonderful London feel about it, that TFL kind of like friendly sort of, I think, the identity and exactly the branding um, and just the cheerful mood is really just hits a lovely note for London at this moment. It remains to be seen how well, long that cheerful mood lasts, of course. I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean let's, let's not go crazy here. It's not like strangers were actually talking to each other or anything insane like that. But I it, chatted to a stranger and you he had... Not. I think I met the first dog to travel the, on the Elizabeth <laughs> line and we were chatting. It was a very sweet little dog and um, we had a moment and that is actually unusual. It's, it's a historic day. <laughs> well, it is now. <laughs> UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, 
Contact us at ubs.com. You are listening to The Curator. We hear now from Tall Stories, and this week Monaco's Olga Tokariuk returns to Kyiv to assess the current state of day-to-day life after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. After three months away, I returned to Kyiv to find it looking so familiar, but also so different, scarred by war. Me and my family left to western Ukraine a few days before the Russian invasion began. Last weekend, I briefly returned to take some things before going back to western Ukraine, which still feels safer to live with a child. Kyiv looked almost normal. There were a lot of people on the streets, including kids. According to local authorities, two-thirds of pre-war Kyiv residents are currently in the city. Many have been returning in recent days. And while there is much less traffic on normally busy streets, partly due to fuel shortages, the metro carriages are packed. Metro stations don't serve as bomb shelters anymore, but the underground hasn't resumed its regular operations yet. Trains run every 20 minutes instead of usual 3 to 5, and the metro closes early, two hours before night curfew. While I was waiting for a train, an elderly lady was singing a false song, Oi Oluzi Cervona Kalina, a symbol of Ukraine's resistance, repeating the refrain, We will make Ukraine smile again, over and over. Many businesses in Kyiv have reopened, but not all of them. I checked some popular cafes and restaurants, and 8 out of 10 were open. Queues at the entry to Crimean Tatar restaurant Musafir and to a kiosk with Kyiv's famous fast food, a sausage in fried dough, known as Brepichka, looked clearly like signs of normality, as were blooming chestnut trees on the central Khrushchev Street, Kyiv's landmark. I was also happy to see that my favorite bookshop has reopened. I rushed into it to purchase some books and support their struggling business financially. There are obviously a lot of armed people in military uniforms in the city, too. Documents are checked at the entrance to the main train station and at the platform exits in an attempt to identify Russian sabotage groups. But it's the sounds that betray that normal life has not yet returned to Kyiv. From distant explosions caused by demining in Kyiv's suburbs to air raid sirens, which still go off several times per day. One of them wailed while I was in St. Michael's Cathedral, interrupting my prayer. The sound was coming from all sides, from my smartphone and those of people around who also installed an app warning of air raid alerts. I decided to stay in the church. It must have been the safest place in Kyiv, I thought. Throughout history, St. Michael's always gave shelter to residents when enemy troops besieged the city. So I sat there, inhaling the candle smell, looking at the frescoes of Virgin Mary on the 12th century walls, tears streaming down my face in grief for Ukrainian lives, lost and upended by Russian invasion. Strolling central Kyiv streets, I looked for differences from the pre-war city. Here, monuments to Kyiv's medieval rulers, protected from airstrikes by bags of sand and wooden walls. 
Here, huge banners on St. Sofia Square in yellow and blue colors, praising Ukrainians' bravery and calling to save the city of Mariupol. Here, anti-tank hedgehogs and Ukrainian flags stuck into a grass field in honor of false soldiers at Maidan Cave's central square. One of the most striking things were street banners, not replaced since February 24, the day Russian invasion began. They were still advertising concerts and balls that never happened. It felt as if the time had stopped, frozen. I saw a banner of the movie I last saw in the cinema in peaceful Kyiv, Stop Zemlya, by Ukrainian director Katerina Hornostai, a tender story about teenage love. The banner was partially destroyed by Russian missile strikes aimed at a nearby industrial facility, which damaged residential buildings too. The latest strike killed my colleague, a journalist, Vira Hirich. The shattered banner looked like a perfect epitome of innocent life so abruptly lost. No, life in Ukraine's capital is not like it used to be before the war. Kyiv residents may return, businesses may reopen, but the war scars are there to stay. Also on my weekly show, The Stack, about magazines and newspapers, I had the pleasure to speak with the editor-in-chief of Vogue Ukraine, Filip Vlasov. He tells me about the challenges in making the publication post-invasion. Yeah, we decided to go to bi-monthly, and we decided to do the redesign, to, to freshen it up, and to enlarge the format. And it was the first issue in the Ukrainian language, actually, because before we were publishing it in Russian. That's a really interesting. And, and now the content you guys are made, I, I believe, explain to us about what happens to the print edition. Of course, with everything that's been happening, you had to seize it. But I know there's a lot of digital content. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, as soon as the war broke, we decided to temporarily seize the print edition. But the digital has become our core. And we actually had quite a success during this difficult time. Like now we got over two and a half million website unique users per month, even though we are limited in topics, obviously, and we are now only in Ukrainian. So we lost the Russian audience mostly. And also we have zero budget for promotion at the moment. So, and for the content, it is like humanitarian war-related content to inspire Ukrainians and also to raise the awareness of this war and its consequences abroad. At the same time, we do not cover the war progress itself. There are the news outlets for that. Instead, we feature personal stories of the survivors. We give uh, advices how to survive during the war. And we remind our readers of the heroic history and those unique cultural heritage of the country they are now fighting for. And that's really interesting because that's what I was going to ask. Of course, we hear news about Ukraine you know, all the time from the newspapers, from the TV channels. But it's good that perhaps Vogue Ukraine is showing kind of the human side as well. You know, there's still lots of art uh, made by Ukrainians and even fashion in a way, right? Right, sure. One of the major stories we were producing like months before the war broke out, it was a story on the artist Pavla Makov, who is representing Ukraine at the Venice Biennale. And this story, unfortunately, we couldn't run it in print, but the, a lot of other Vogue editions globally did publish it. So our voices hurt through the help of other Vogue editions that we collaborate with at the moment. 
I was going to ask, how is this collaboration going on? Because, you know, there are a lot of international editions. Are they featuring a lot of content from Vogue Ukraine? Because as, as you know, Philip, the whole world is paying a lot of attention to what's happening in Ukraine. So I'm sure there's been a lot of interest about what you guys are doing as well. Yes, lots of other editions are actually syndicating some stories for us. So uh, as soon as we saw this interest, we decided to translate the major stories into English so it's easier for like other editions of Vogue. And also we do some stories especially for featuring in other editions globally. For example, an interview with the first lady of Ukraine, Elena Zelenska, that hit the Vogue.com on the April 8th. And it was also syndicated by most of the editions of Vogue. I mean, that's that's definitely a story that everybody wants to read. Uh, and, and Philip, tell us a bit more. I mean, this is incredibly sad because you're all based in Kiev. You had an office there. But now what happened to the thing and, and yourself? I guess you're having to kind of work uh, across the world. I guess your thing is in different parts of Europe. I don't know. Tell us a bit more. Are there still yeah. people in Kiev? What's going on? Yeah, it's true. Like half of my team is uh, still in Kyiv and uh, in the western Ukraine, like those areas that, that are safest for the moment. And another half is spread all over the western Europe, like in Czech Republic, Poland, France, uh, here in Switzerland. And th- thanks to pandemics, actually, we used to be working remotely. And we learned the lesson and now it's quite easy actually to, to communicate and to, to work on the new projects. And how's, how's everything in Zurich? Do you think you've been welcomed there? You know, I want to know more about, about your experience and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, this emotional side as well. Yeah, everybody was so grateful to people of all the countries that I personally came across a number of countries when fleeing Ukraine, like Moldova, Romania. Poland, Czech Republic, and they were really, really helpful, and uh, so there was a lot of support. And Condé you know, from its side also helped us a lot to travel, to find accommodation, and yeah, we yeah, really, really appreciate that great help. I read a very beautiful kind of text you wrote for Vogue as well, talking about this aspect of nationality, because you moved to Ukraine, uh, I don't know, was it seven years ago or something? And you very much kind of feel Ukrainian at heart, right? Tell us a a bit more this feeling, like now when you're you're outside, you're, you're so connected to the country, right? It is true. Like, actually Russian, and I got Russian passport, but I was based in Kyiv for about eight years within the last decades. And there was basically no need to trying to change the passport. Like, I got Ukrainian residence permit. I was living there legally and had no problems with that passport, but not anymore. (laughs) And so I had difficulties basically finding the legal way to stay in Europe, which I found finally in Switzerland. And you came with your dog, right? I think that's very Uh, important. Yes, I am. I'm sure sure it's always with me. A very cute dog. What's what's the name of the dog? His name is Ari, and he's an Italian greyhound. It's, it's a very beautiful... I saw the picture, actually, on the, on the text. So, and is there, perhaps it's a little bit too early for me to ask this, Philip, but is there an intention to go back to print as well? Or at the moment, there are other priorities, like focusing on this kind of increasing uh, digital sphere for Vogue Ukraine? Aside that we do increase the digital sphere for, at the moment, like we are going to work on our YouTube channel and producing lots of new content. But uh, we are also thinking of print uh, and we are 
planning to target the Western audience, actually. We would like to publish a number of books. The first one, it's almost ready. It's called Nine and a Half Years of Vogue in Ukraine. And it's basically the best of Vogue Ukraine. We call it Nine and a Half Years because we are like cut on the way to the 10th anniversary. So this is the title. And we're now considering whether we publish it in Ukraine, but going to have this way we're going to have some logistic issue to bring the whole amount of copies to the, to the West. Or maybe we find a collaborator in European Union, for example. And another book we are planning to do is the anthology of the contemporary Ukrainian prose and poetry. Because like during the last three years, we've been commissioning the top Ukrainian writers and poets to do something special for Vogue Ukraine. And it's a huge collection, actually. And we're going to translate it into English and print it in both languages, Ukrainian and English. I cannot wait to look, actually, at the books, especially the one about nine and a half years of Vogue Ukraine. Thank you. And, and tell us a bit how, I mean, of course, Vogue Ukraine, I believe, you know, there was a lot of fashion being discussed. There must be an incredible disruption for Ukrainian designers as well, right, at the moment. Uh, I know there was an incredibly talented scene in cities like Kiev. How is that working? I think most designers, they've, they've been incredibly affected by this, right? They are, sure. But some designers actually producing some uh, military ammunition and some pieces like T-shirts, fundraising funds for Ukraine. And also at the same time, many of them are still trying to work on the fall winter collection and or spring summer collections of the next year. And we're actually planning to do a big event in Paris during the Fashion Week where we're going to be featuring like 15 top Ukrainian designers. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And now a highlight from the foreign desk. Sweden and Finland have submitted their applications to become NATO's 31st and 32nd members. We ask what Sweden and Finland would bring to the alliance and if this expansion would make NATO's mission of defending the West easier or harder. One of our guests was Mikaela Kumling-Granit, Sweden's ambassador to the UK. We are talking about a historical decision. We have been conducting a policy of non-alignment for over 200 years. Mm. It's part of our political identity. It's part of the political tradition within many Swedes. So I must say, I really need to just stress that how historical this. And I would say that maybe not only three months ago would have believed that we would have even been discussing NATO and so forth. But what actually happened was that we did have a deteriorating situation in our security climate in the nor northern Europe or in Europe. But when we saw the Russian invasion or the aggression towards Ukraine, this was not only a hit or an aggression against the democratic and sovereign European country. It was not only a violation of the European security order as we know it from the, since the Second World War or of international law. It was also the way and the sort of aggression, which was very brutal, systemic, and we see it continues to be structural. And this really shocked the Swedish public and me as well. At that point still, we didn't know the, how the effects would be on us or the public opinion, but quite early on, there was a big change in the Swedish mood because of this. And there was a realization that the policy that we have conducted, you know, that was non-aligned based on bilateral agreements with mm. all our closest partners, that that was not really enough to give us the security guarantee that we would need living close by a neighbor 
with intentions that we saw and we had hoped that Russia wouldn't have had. But what really also, and I think this is maybe the most important point, is that on top of that, it was the acts of Finland. And when Finland started to move quite, you know, steadily mm. in the direction and preparing for or looking for preparations when it came to submitting an application, this really got the Swedish public opinion moving. And that also got our politicians to very much follow and started to take that as an alternative in the analysis that was taking place in Stockholm and or in Sweden at that point. When you talk about that shift in public opinion, and you, and you are quite right, it is an astonishing revision of the way that Sweden has seen itself in the world and in Europe for the last couple of centuries. Do you get the sense that it was the Swedish public looking at what was happening in Ukraine and thinking, that could be us, we feel vulnerable? Or was it more a case of the Swedish public looking at this and thinking, we have to pick a side here. This is not something you can sit out. I think... Probably both. First of all, that there's a realization how vulnerable we suddenly are. That Mm. if you have a neighbor that does not play by the rules at all and does not really have any hesitance on the brutality, it kind of feels that it's kind of also a threat toward us. But it's also something else, as you were saying. It's also a realization that we need to be part of that side on one side and we have a responsibility as well to be security providers and to be part of building European security. Because one thing that is different if you're outside NATO is that not only are you not covered by the security guarantees, but you're not sitting by the table and taking the decisions. Mm. And you're not part of what we need to be able to be part of constructing or being part of developing that new kind of security reality that we're living in. So I would say probably both. Do you think there's any sense as well among Swedish public or perhaps Swedish politicians that perhaps Sweden has been, I'm not sure how you'd put it, naive or complacent in pursuing this non-aligned position with regard to Russia in recent decades in particular? Because certainly over the last few weeks and months when we've spoken to a lot of current or former politicians from the Baltic states, there has been a recurring theme from them of, we told you so, if only you would have listened. Do you think there is a bit of a sense now that Sweden feels like it may have misjudged the situation? No, I don't think so, because we have been quite secure in ourselves and quite true to the point that the non-aligned policy that we've had has served us very well. Mm. But up until now, and we saw this change with the Russian aggression and the brutality of it, there has been a completely new realization that the security environment is of another sort than it was just maybe a year ago or six months ago. So I wouldn't say that we've been naive. It depends. I think we have really seen the benefits of it. And don't forget, we have been cooperating quite closely through our bilateral networks, Finland, the Nordic countries, the Baltic states, the UK, the US. Mm. So it's not that we haven't had a very strong cooperation on the defense and security side. We have also, during this period, increased our defense spending. We have also developed our defense and military services. So we have been on that ball for quite some time. And also, just to illustrate again how the Russia aggression against Ukraine changed the thinking was that for the first time since 1939, we decided to deliver weapons to Mm. another 
army, the Ukrainian army, which is also unheard of from the Syrian side. So it's actually, this is a very transformative moment, I would say, this latest aggression of Ukraine. And then, of course, we have also been quite vigilant when it comes to the Russians after 2014 with the first Donbass. And it was from that point on that we actually started to look at the increasing of our defense spending and so forth. So we reversed it quite early on, actually, I would say. I mean, you're quite right in that Sweden has been heavily involved with NATO without ever quite joining it. Swedish troops have deployed overseas on on NATO-led missions. Sweden does maintain a very serious military, is a major manufacturer of defence equipment. Beyond all that, what do you feel like Sweden now brings to NATO? Is there maybe a, a different way of thinking about European security that Sweden has learnt from however many centuries of non-alignment that perhaps NATO can draw something from? Well, I think just as you started off with saying, I think years of close cooperation with NATO has prepared us very well. We have been working and participating in all NATO UN missions for many, many, many of them. So we have a very high level of interoperability on that sense. And then we have the capacity and the capabilities, not only in the air, but also marine. But also, I would say that If you look at a map and you have now Finland and Sweden part of NATO, you also see that you have a consistency in geography, which means that you have also this Nordic cooperation that we have. That could also be magnified. You will have a much stronger Nordic component in the geography within NATO. And that will also, of course, support the security and the safety of, for instance, the Baltic states, which is something that they always also underline. And it's also something that I know that it will be very much appreciated from many other NATO countries. So you could say there would be a Nordic component. And then, of course, the sense of responsibility as well and being part of the European thinking also on, on the Nordic values and so forth. But we'll see. We're in a very early stage yet. And finally on the show, the frontman of rock band Pulp, Jarvis Cocker, has written a new, unusual memoir. He uses the random assortment of things found in the pop star's loft as starting points to tell his story. There are poignant photos, industrious plans for the future of Pulp, scribbled in notebooks, as well as the downright bizarre. The memoir is accompanied by an exhibition at the Gallery of Everything in London. And Monaco's Sophie Monahan Coombs went along for Jarvis to give her a tour through the curious that tells the story of his life. Hello, Jarvis here. I'm here at the exhibition for... I've got a book coming out called Good Pop, Bad Pop, and it's all based on things that were found in the loft of a house that I used to live in. I started clearing out that loft, looking at the objects that were in there and realising that they could tell a story if I looked at them in the right order and stuff. So it's a memoir, I suppose, but coming at it from physical objects rather than memories which led to me telling a different story I think and here at the gallery of everything some of those objects are on show that we're looking now at a periodic table that's been put together of the various objects um, 
because there's a quote from the book. If it could be represented in visual terms, the contents of my brain would probably resemble the contents of this loft, a jumble of things with no one factor in dominance. I kind of believe that. It's like an investigation into my creative life. And also what I think is, I think it's the same for everyone, you know, we all walk around with this jumble of things in our minds and probably everybody's got a cupboard or a drawer at home with a jumble of objects that you're not sure where, how you pick them up. I think that's the beginnings of creativity, really. It's, it's the interaction between those things that spark ideas off. We're looking at a vitrine here and it's got a shirt in the middle of it with it's orange with circles on it. So this is significant to me because that's the very f first second-hand clothing item that I ever bought. So that was from a jumble sale just up the road from where I lived in Sheffield. So people, any people who know anything about me, I suppose, will know that I tend to wear... People call it vintage now, but in my day it was second-hand which was the beginning it was an important thing for me because it was in the wake of punk rock happening i decided i wanted to be in a band i decided i wanted to do something different and so choosing my own clothes was an important part of that and i was just very lucky because this church was very near our house and jumble sales were very cheap you know that shirt would have cost five pence probably so it was really an easy way to experiment with clothes you could go and spend 50p and have a whole new wardrobe and just see what things you liked and which you didn't and maybe throw away the ones you didn't and start to learn about clothes that way. Another object right next to that shirt is this fantastic dirty joke book. So I discovered on the back seat of a bus after we'd been to the swimming baths at school and uh, as you can imagine I was around 13 at the time so there was a massive fight for it amongst all the boys and the back cover got ripped off. Somehow I got to take it home. And I, in the book I talk about how this book was... It was at a time when I was just about going through puberty so I was looking for clues about what sex was about. I, I lived in a household which was very female dominated. My father had left when I was seven. There were, there were no kind of men around. So I was desperate to find out about what sex was like from a man's perspective. I thought I would learn something from this book, but it's just really rubbish and all the jokes are really bad and, and I didn't learn that much at all. In this vitrine we've got um, this is my mum's wedding photograph, so this was in a time when basically she got pregnant. She didn't know who the father was because she'd gone to the doctor thinking that she just had some kind of abdominal complaint and then he said, you're four months pregnant. And so she tracked it down that it must have been a Christmas party where she'd had a kind of thing with my dad. In those days, you know, you got married, so so they they got married. Uh, so I'm there on that picture as a four-month-old thing, <laughs> um, and I, it was a look on my mum's face. Really, she looks quite um, kind of scared. I don't know, and and it, it made a, when I found that picture when I was maybe about the same age as she was. She was like 21 when she got married. So 
and I ended up writing a song about that. So, um, yeah, so, so, you know, so some things that, the thing with this loft is I would find significant things like that picture and then I would find absolute rubbish like, you know, this thing that I still don't know what it is. It's like, it looks like it should be a key ring, but it's got this funny stirrup at the end. There was no discrimination in the objects in the loft. It was, some of it was absolute rubbish, some of it was important to me, I mean, not to anyone else. Sometimes the more insignificant pieces of rubbish trigger more of a memory than maybe something you wrote down that you thought was really significant at the time, but then you look at it and you just wince when you read it 20 years later. It's, that, it's the kind of mixture of stuff, I suppose, that, that's important. The thing that I was asking myself a question about was why I'd a, I hung on to this stuff. You know, mo I moved house a lot and stuff, you know, and yet it's just been there in the dark. I mean, this is the first time these things have seen the light of day, really. I mean, I, as I say, I carried some of them around when I was writing the book, but I've never had them on the display in my house. They've just been in the dark getting dusty, or a lot of clothes got eaten by moths. This jumper, I'm looking at an acrylic star jumper that survived because it's made entirely of man-made fibers, so moths would not touch that. Why did I write this song on that one day? Why did you touch my hand and softly say Stop asking questions that don't matter anyway Just give us a kiss to celebrate Jarvis Cocker there and you can listen to the full interview on Monocle Culture this week. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Dewars and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>